Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux, everybody. Uh, Gary and I are, are here at Boston University. Today we have a great guest and dear friend in terms of Charlene Wheelis, who's uh, the recent former CCO at Bechtel, right? Right. And uh, is the new chair of Page Society. And so doing that's, a great job. Yeah. So that's going to be terrific. But let's jump into the news. Probably the biggest news globally these days is the growing interest and scare around the mm. coronavirus. It emanated initially out of China. Normally, when you and I are operating in, with clients in the corporate world, or at when we were chief communications mm -hmm. officers, there would be a critical point in time where we felt we needed to trot out senior leadership to address a major issue and at least reflect on right. the situation, show some empathy. And I found it interesting. And, and there's even been some social media in China talking about not seeing Xi. Yes. W was curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah. It's amazing because in most crises in the past, the Chinese leader has been very visible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can remember the earthquake in sort of Western China before yeah. the Olympic Games yep. back in 2008. And in this case, it seems like a deliberate strategy in this crisis for him to stay out of view. Mm -hmm. And the Times had a, New York Times had a great piece on it. Um, and that's resulted in, in a couple of things. And for the first time, some questioning in a broad sense yeah. in China about his leadership and is he doing this to insulate himself from yeah. Uh, if something were to go wrong. And then also, we talked about this last week, the, yeah. the doctor, I guess he was an ophthalmologist, right. who first reported this. And was concerned that it might be SARS-like. Exactly. And Back in December, I yes. think, or maybe yeah, even was, earlier, yeah. he passed away. He, with the virus. With the virus. One of the things I learned was it's a 2% fatality rate on this. Huh. So you wonder why a doctor... Yeah. would have passed away. And that's the kind of speculation now right. that social media Get creates. people talking. And where is Xi? One of the things I learned about re reading from this Times piece, is, which is titled, Where Is He? You know, Where mm -hmm. is Xi? Is that he's consolidated power so much so mm -hmm. that there's really not a lot of leaders around him. Right. Who And he's got his number two sort of who went to Wuhan yeah. and was the face of, right. I guess, the government and the party there. But he's consolidated power to such the degree that he's not going to avoid blame right. if things go bad anyway. Right. So he might as well be visible, which is, of course, the traditional thing you do when something like this becomes a clear crisis. Yeah. And in fact, that's one of the, you know, you, you read Doris Kearns Goodwin's right. and a team of rivals. Yeah, exactly. And in the ideal world, a leader has people close to him who kind, kind yeah. of wake them up, yes. you know, to say, you know, maybe we should do something sure. different. You kind of wonder, is right. there anybody like that? Exactly. Uh, speaking of leadership, another item in the news this past week that played 
pretty largely in the U.S., was Mitt Romney's speech on the Senate floor Mm -hmm. when he decided to essentially cross over and vote with the Democrats on one of the articles of of dismissal Mm -hmm. uh, coming out of the impeachment discussions. A lot of people kind of looked at what he had to say from a vantage point that this is kind of a profiles in courage that you had mm-hmm. Mitt Romney, who at points in his career, like any other politician, has had to kern mm-hmm. towards, you know, more where the people were going or where the politics of one's organization was going as opposed to voting with mm-hmm. his heart. And in fact, I know that the Obama forces during the campaign had used kind of things that he had said when he was governor of Massachusetts versus what he was saying in the campaign. And both sides oftentimes try to find, you know, where politicians say one thing some time ago and then say something else. But this appeared to be, at 70 years old, him thinking through his consciousness and his conscience and coming out and stating something clearly that was different than we heard from others. It was the one authentic moment that I've seen in this whole situation, this whole Mm -hmm. issue. Not to say that the Democratic prosecutors, if you will, case Mm -hmm. managers Mm -hmm. in the the, uh, trial Mm -hmm. uh, weren't authentic in in certain situations, but you just didn't see that in other Mm -hmm. cases. And it was because we talk about purpose so much, and he talked about... um, you know, his faith being at the core of who he was and, right. in fact, got choked up on it during these remarks. Whether you believe the president should have been removed or right. not, it was so refreshing to me right. to see somebody actually saying something they really believe. believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, yeah, Mike? Yeah. And uh, as opposed to uh, some others, you know, I hope he's learned his lesson and all that kind of stuff, which is just political manipulation of words right. to try to get yourself... Political angst. <laughs> yeah, to get yourself out of the situation that you find yourself in. And we had Eric Schnur on here, who's yeah. a speechwriter yeah. and done a lot of work. And obviously his remarks were prepared. Mitt right. Romney's remarks were prepared. And it reminded me how important speech writing and speech giving can be. And you go back through history, that's where we find our inspiration in most cases as a country is something that's been written ahead of time rather than done extemporaneously. But but even if it's prepared, even if it's done in advance, what you hope is that it's done with a conscience. It's done with a soul. It is authentic. There's some level of transparency that lets you into the heart and soul of the person who's conveying the words. I agree completely, Mike. Talking about authenticity and transparency and talking (laughs) about speeches. We also heard from the president of the United States. You know, one of the the rituals of the U.S. government is every year we hear from the president of the United States, no matter who they are, no matter what party they're from, and we hear the State of the Union address. President Trump gave his State of the Union address. Was it all that authentic? Was it all that transparent? How would you grade that particular well, as oration. Uh, you know, as a television event, Mike, I'd give it very high marks. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, he wrapped himself in the flag. Yeah. He claimed victory, yeah. which, you know, for leaders and even for companies to have goals and to be able to say we've reached them, mm-hmm. e- even if perhaps you have not in this case, <laughs> 
uh, or reach them in ways that maybe are going to turn out to be regrettable. So as a television event, I give it high marks and, you know, introducing... I mean, he even gave away a scholarship. And a medal to Rush Limbaugh. And a medal to Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> Presented and, and put on Rush by the anti-bullying first lady and, and <laughs> to somebody who perhaps has been a bully throughout uh, his whole professional career. Perhaps that's not what we need as a television right. event right now, and, right. and that's what we got. Yeah. Well, and it also, you know, combined with his acquittal yeah. and remarks thereafter— this is not about humility. This no. is not about being authentic. It's about, yeah. you know, it, it, it's it, winning. It's winning, right, in your own view. And, of course, you, you team that up with comments made at the prayer breakfast, yeah. which is supposed to be a nonpartisan event and has been traditional. Oftentimes is a solemn event. Exactly. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and turned somewhat into a, a carnival by the president the next day. Then you go ahead forward to the Friday and the firings of two witnesses, mm-hmm. you know, the... So lute- you had the ambassador, Sondland. Yeah, right. And then you had the lieutenant colonel, the right. uh, uh, Vindman. And he was sort of perp-walked out with his... Uh, with his brother. With his brother. He was also on the national security team. Yeah, so this idea that we might have some kind of healing after all of this was uh, quickly dashed and, and put aside... From a communications standpoint, there was an opportunity for leadership. Yeah. Again, go back to Clinton, and he gave a very brief remarks, set of remarks in the Rose Garden after he was acquitted, mm-hmm. saying, I'm truly sorry, and I'm yeah. sorry what I put Congress through, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there was an opportunity for authentic leadership there. Yeah. And, and we didn't see it. And we didn't see it. Well, and the other interesting thing is you almost wonder in any future potential whistleblower kind yes. of situation where the fact set is real and true, how likely are some people to come forward right. if they know yeah. that the likely outcome could be they're simply shown the door? Exactly. Right? Exactly. By the way, I'm going to ask you, the one piece of the State of the Union that uh, we haven't talked about is the Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, ripping oh. the president's speech in half. What did yeah, you think of that, Mike? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, what the White House has done with it. Yes. Because they've packaged a video that literally shows her ripping it behind other events and yeah. comments. So it looks like she's in disagreement with these specific exactly. statements or, or, or references. I even tell my classes, I say, context is everything. It is. And context is getting distorted. Yeah. That said, I understand her frustration, not the move I would have made. Yeah, exactly. You know, one other thing before we go to our guest, and I know we're probably going to talk with our guest as well, around diversity and inclusion. I know it's something that she cares very, very deeply about. But it was interesting. We just saw the Oscars. Oh, yeah. And uh, there were, as there have been in other years, there's been the whole question around, is there enough diversity in the nominees and in the ultimate Mm -hmm. selection? It was interesting, the, uh, the actress, Natalie Portman, had a gown where she had the names of women who yes. through the years had been overlooked right, by right. the Academy. That's great. Which was kind of interesting. But I also thought what was interesting and well done is how the Academy's show, right. 
was clearly had diverse elements in the show, if right. not in all the nominees. But then the the other was the the surprise winner for Picture of the Year in in Parasite. Yeah. Uh, the Parasite w- is the first foreign language, non English speaking film, film yeah. to win the Oscar in ninety two years. In yeah, years. and I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, but uh, I'm I'm quite interested now and have been. It just makes me wonder about an organization that has such scrutiny. Mm -hmm. There's probably more written about the Oscars than there is about the United States budget. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's just a a huge event in this country. And you would think that internally there's probably a liberal bias to address these kinds of things. Exactly, Mike. And yet the membership itself ultimately gets to a point where, you know, they don't come to a diverse outcome, which right. I think underscores how difficult all of this right, really right. is, right? And maybe perhaps it's similar to something you're going to say to our guest here in a minute. The decisions sometimes aren't made by them. Right. In other words, the studios and deciding who to put in films and who to direct films and all those other right. things. Right. Uh, it's like there aren't as many women directors as you would think there would be, exactly. given the proclivity of the world of creative talent. Yes. You'd think you'd see more women directors. Yeah. I, I'm just glad my guy, Brad Pitt, won, because a lot of people think he and I look Alike. <laughs> what are you laughing about? That's why they say we both have a face for radio. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hello. Our guest today on The Crux is the new chair of the Arthur W. Page Society, Charlene Wheelis, the former chief communications officer of the global engineering procurement and construction company, Bechtel, a really big, important company. Charlene spent more than a decade in the top job at Bechtel, and before that in communications leadership positions for companies such as Raytheon and Northrop Grumman. Charlene just completed her first board meeting as the page chair. We're going to talk to her about that. And she's got a very ambitious agenda for the year focused on learning, member engagement, and progress on diversity in our profession. Charlene is the first African-American to lead PAGE, mm-hmm. I believe, Mike. Yep. And this PAGE, if you don't know, it is the premier professional group in the public relations profession uh, with practitioners, educators like Mike and myself, and uh, leaders of big PR agencies. So uh, welcome to the crux, Charlene. Thank you, Gary. I'm happy to join you today. So congratulations on becoming the chair of PAGE. And let's let's jump right into that. Tell me what's on your agenda for 2020 for the PAGE Society. Well, I think you said it a bit when you started out about uh, learning. You know, as you know, Paige recently launched some groundbreaking thought leadership uh, on the evolving role of the CCO. Uh, Our focus over the next year will be to use that work as a launch pad for making Paige a learning organization and to provide a path for the CCOs as pace setters uh, in their companies and in the profession. This is also a strategic planning year for Paige, so that too is very exciting and we will of course, uh, integrate learning into that in everything we do. Um, And also, of course, as you mentioned, um, championing diversity in a meaningful way is um, very important to me in PAGE. You know, many people think historically PAGE is a group for, you know, middle-aged white guys, and (laughs) no offense. (laughs) uh, 
know, and I'm I'm here to help show that you know Paige has evolved, and we're about so much more uh, than people think we are. So that, that's really great, and I want to dig into that a, a little bit. The Page report on the Thought Leadership report that John Awada and Amor Hines and many others contributed to is just really terrific. It's it's actionable. It it gives you sort of a progression path to go through on certain topics such as ComTech, you know, you know, digitizing your yourself and your team if you lead a team. So what's the goal around learning associated with that report and page? You know, there's a lot of, in the profession, it pops up in my inbox every morning, you know, something from a different conference here or there, PRSA or Reagan or one of these other more commercial outlets. What's Page trying to do and what's the focus going to be on, on learning? Yeah, I think that, um, and I feel confident that Page is unique in that we focus on the CCO now, but also into the future. And it's not so much about execution, it is also about strategy and a global view. We bring together the best thinking from around the world and help our members become leaders in these areas. You know, with the thought leadership work, we've identified, you know, four areas that we think are um, extremely important moving forward. Uh, and this is based on what CEOs are saying. And those are uh, contact, societal value, brand, and culture. So our learning paths that we will be creating over the next few, uh, over this next year and continuing, I will really focus on those areas. So with Page and for us, it's about continuous learning and continuous growth. Right. It's not about one workshop here or learn how to do this. This is about how to make you a world-leading CTO. If you don't mind, I, I also think one other area that we're focused on, too, is that we are also creating ways for our members to develop their teams in these areas as well. You know, there's not a lot out there for CCOs to really bring their teams along. You know, the resources right. you really have to look for them. And we see this as an opportunity for our CCOs to partner with their learning organizations in their companies and to add uh, our content into their curricula for uh, developing the next leaders in uh, communications and PR. That's great because uh, that's the value that I thought was the best from mm-hmm. Paige was the ability to bring the team along with me. It was ju- wasn't just about me as a member of Paige, but through future mm-hmm. leaders and other things, really to 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 build the team that you wanted as well too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I think we real. I think that is really a sweet spot for us. And I, um, you know, the former CCO, I am one who who is extremely uh, excited about having real tangible ways. To, that I can take back to my company and in our, you know, every company has a university so that I can take back to a company and uh, and integrate it and yeah. say this is how we're going to develop our people. Well, one of those issues, that, I mean, because there are some issues that kind of cut across a number of those four, sometimes two, yeah. sometimes three, but is the whole subject of diversity and inclusion. Yeah. And, you know, Gary announced that you're the first African American to lead Page, uh, which now you know we've got about 800 members, and I know that uh, a number of us have been a little distraught that we're not as diverse as we'd like to be. Now we don't make that decision. Right. That decision is made at you know 800 different corporate headquarters, <laughs> if you will. Um, right. But you know our profession kind of struggles with 
increasing the number of women at the top and the number of minorities and senior leadership positions. What is PAGE planning to do about that? Well, I'm very excited about uh, one effort that we started and that we've, we've helped launch along with other professional organizations a consortium called the Diversity Action Alliance. And through this group, we are asking our members to take an active role in moving along diversity and inclusion in their organization. And so this isn't a group of people that sit around, you know, thinking and talking about D&I, saying, boy, wouldn't it be great if we can improve D&I? You know, this is a group <laughs> that's asking its members to go take action, to measure the results, and report out on, our, on their progress. You know, we want our members to act, adopt the best, best practices, and accelerate change. We want them to champion with action and in a real way. And we, we want them to model the behavior we want to see and to really track their progress. Um, this, is, this is no more about, you know, has everyone in your organization had unconscious bias, right? right. Um, we've all been unconscious, unconsciously biased to death. This mm-hmm. is about what are you going to do to make a difference? Right. And uh, we've set a goal of reflecting the diversity in the United, for our industry to reflect the diversity in the United States by 2025. Um, so we've put a stake in the ground and we're watching it and we're measuring it and we're asking our members to report out on it. As we think about that, first of all, let, let me underscore, too, that PRSA Foundation, right. uh, the PR Council, and Institute yeah. for Public Relations are all part of this. That group, yeah. And, and I know yeah. Gary, uh, well, Gary and I are both um, you know, members of PAGE. Gar- Gary's still mm-hmm. on the board there. I'm on the board of both PRSA Foundation and IPR, <laughs> have been on the board of PR Council. But what I, I actually think this is a great thing. I do too. Um, you know, because so many of these organizations were kind of off trying to do their own thing. And I think collectively, and to put that emphasis on action, as you just described, Charlene, I think is, is, is very important. In terms of uh, how do we, beyond sort of sharing the data in some sort of collective form or individually, how do we how do we prod the results that we'd all like to see? Well, I, I think what we're doing differently than we've done before is now we're saying to CCOs, uh, how do you how can you mirror this? in your own organization that you control within your communications organization. For agencies where most of our members are CEOs, they have a different level of influence that, uh, that they can have. And so and instead, of, instead of saying just go out and do something, we're saying take your, um, you, where you have a span of control and take an action. Tell us what that action is right. going to be and then prove that you've done it. And, and it can be it can be small things. For example, when I was um, when I was in Bethel, one of the things that I did, uh, and when you walked in our department, we had a wall that had pictures of everybody right. uh, on the team on the wall, uh-huh. yeah. and people quickly began noticing that we had one of the most diverse teams uh, in the company at that time. Good for you. And That's so great. that made people start to pay attention to it. 
Yeah. Right. One of the things I think is good, too, that Paige has done, the Diverse Future yes. program. Because yeah. uh-huh. some of it is also giving people the the skills to be successful. Exactly. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. I've, I've participated in the Diverse Futures program um, a couple of times. Uh, well, actually, ever since it started, and I'll be speaking again this year. And um, it is a fantastic program, and it's an opportunity, one, for uh, the attendees to hear from a lot of different CCOs and a diverse group of CCOs about our own path and to be able to see where uh, where they may be having some of the same experiences. But then also it's an environment where they can open up and talk about what their concerns are. And then we also partner, we become mentors to help right. them see, okay, we, we've been executives, we are executives, here's how this, here's how this works, right? And it's such a fantastic program. I really encourage anyone who has the means to uh, to go through it to do so. The great part about it is, I agree, I've had the chance to speak a few times, is the ongoing relationships with the attendees. Not only among <coughs> themselves, they, they have formed sort of their own cohort, but I stay in touch with some of the people I've met mm-hmm. and mentored now from that program. I really highly recommend it to the CCOs out there who are who may be listening. And by the way, by the way, Charlene, I had the exact opposite experience of your photo story. Um, <laughs> and this was when I was at GE and uh, leading the communications team there. And we had a conference, I think it was in California. And they took one of those photos where the guy goes up on a ladder and everybody looks up. And that photo got sent back to me and say, hey, well, what a great conference this was. Thanks for leading it, Gary. And I looked at the picture and I just about, you know, passed out. You know, it's, I could barely even look at the picture. <laughs> and we took steps, you know, making things visible and putting them in front yeah. of you. Vis- it, it just and, and that's about the time I was, uh, I think, the chair of Paige. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's when we decided we were going to get serious there as well, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was just shortly thereafter is when we started this program. Exactly. The future program. Exactly. Yeah. So you sent a chill up my spine, Charlene. <laughs> <when> I, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting when I started our photo project because n- nobody understood actually what I was doing. It's just like, oh, well, you just want to put your people up and you're proud of your people. Right. And, but what I really wanted to do was hold a mirror up to people and get them to realize that this is what a diverse team looks like. And if your team isn't diverse, you've got a problem on your hands. Exactly. So that along those lines, you know, uh, Paige, of course, is focused on enhancing the role of the CCO within the enterprise. A few years ago, Paige changed its purpose statement, mission statement, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, to say that our purpose is to unite the world's best communicators, which it does, but to transform business for the better. So that was an extension. That last part of that sentence Mm -hmm. was really ahead of the business roundtable and some other organizations who have discovered purpose lately. How can communicators help deliver enterprise value more, you know, to society as well as serving their investors? And maybe some thoughts, Charlene, how you thought about it at a really impactful, important company like Bechtel. Well, I, I would say, you know, one of the great things about being uh, in a CEO is that you're one of the few organizations that, or a few positions that look across the entire company all of the time. Right. That really is your job, is to see what's going on across the company and be a convener. 
of other leaders in the company. So I think we're in a unique position to understand what's happening in our organization, what's happening in society, and we can be the nexus or the connection of those two and help guide our company leaders in defining our organization's purpose, you know, and how best to align that with our responsibility to society. Within Vessel, uh, before I left, we really started talking about is a, the purpose of our corporation. You no, know, we were privately held, but still, what what purpose were we providing to people? Right, right? not just to business or to industry, but what were we providing to to people? And it's the CCO who can really get that conversation started and breathe life into that conversation. And, you know, at Bethel, you know, a company that's been around for 120 plus years, you know, we really saw our purpose as we build these great buildings uh, <laughs> and we built huge things. Yes, you but do. As, but really, when you look at it, what we do is we make people's lives better. We help countries build a middle class that makes people's lives better. And so I think for CCOs, because we can see the universe of our corporation and we can be conveners, we are in a very special place to be able to bring that together with what's happening in society and the needs of society and our organization. Well, that's great because the, the mistake I think companies make sometimes is they pick a purpose that is inconsistent or not aligned with the business strategy. And I was reminded of this, how well that was done uh, at Bechtel. I, I opened up your website over the weekend, and mm-hmm. there's a giant drill bit. I mean, just <laughs> this thing that's as big as a building. And Bechtel is building a great photo, uh, building the biggest sort of public transport system in the history of Australia. And, and to your point, it's like, imagine the, the value, the benefit that will bring to the citizens there, and yet, not specific to to Bechtel, but more generally, companies are having a tough time winning trust of the public, despite doing these amazing things. Right. Right? So what do we need to do to, uh, Charlene, to companies like Bechtel that are, if it didn't exist, you'd have to invent it, right, to to reestablish trust? Yeah, I I think at at the very basic level, trust is about uh, transparency. And I think uh, today's consumers, today's audiences, they don't care anymore if a company is public or if it's privately held. They expect transparency. I think these days, the more opaque your organization, the assumption is that you've got something to hide or that you're doing something untoward. So, um, you know, and let me take this just a little bit further because I think we are also in an age of distrust in society in general. Yes. Right. So yeah. it's not just, you know, corporations, it's governments, it's bad actors who are using technology in nefarious ways. Um, and let's not even get uh, started on the politics of it all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right. You know, so there, there are lots of reasons why um, there is a crisis of trust. And I think going back to purpose and societal value and transparency are really the best antidotes to that. Yeah. Well, and, and you and I both worked in you know, privately held companies. 
And I think that's probably an interesting challenge yeah, inside of exactly. a privately held company. There's not quite the disclosure requirements that a publicly traded company has. I mean, how did you guys draw the line around, you know, what you were willing to share, what you were willing to be transparent about, keeping in mind that, that one, you're probably not required to, and then two, uh, the other side of it is is obviously nobody's going to be fully transparent. You still have proprietary information Absolutely. you're going to protect. Um, but uh, how did you guys think at Bechtel about transparency, and and, and what got you to oppose uh, or to a position where you began to take steps beyond what you historically might have done? When I first joined Bethel, I found a company that really was not transparent uh, at all. As a matter of fact, there was kind of this mystique about Bethel. So <laughs> one of the first things, you know, I think there's even an article out there, um, the men in black kind of thing. Uh, and, Where's know, the cloak? Where's the dagger? <laughs> but exactly, exactly. And I, I had to start out just talking about how the, um, while some people may have taken pride in this idea of the men in black, I, I could bring proof and articles where every time that was mentioned, it was not in a positive context. That's right, yeah. right. It's that let's understand what's really happening here. And then let's also understand that, you know, Sure, when Sarbanes-Oxley was started all those years ago, um, public companies had to be more transparent. But now the public, the public is not making a distinction between the two at all. They just want transparency. Great point. You know, you know millennials, you know, the people who are coming into the workforce, you know, they've lived their lives out loud. Yeah. And they don't understand when others are not living their lives mm-hmm. out loud. So I think there's just this expectation you know, and within Bethel, instead of asking why, why should we be transparent, I started asking the question, why shouldn't we be transparent? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you change the access that the media had to uh, different information or access to facilities or work sites? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, while I was um, at Bethel before I left, we had a fantastic article um, come out, uh, profile come out about Bessel in uh, Fortune magazine. Mm. And it was the first uh, profile that the company had participated in in 30 years. And, um, <laughs> you know, and with this reporter, I mean, we, you know, as they say, we opened the kimono. Mm-hmm. You know, he went to Riyadh. He went to a number of places and watched how we work. Mm-hmm. You know, and my viewpoint was always, if we're as great as we say we are, what mm-hmm. do we have to hide? Right. Well, right? And, if, and in fact, it's very close to a quote that I used to use from my CEO at, at Cargill, Greg Page, who said, in a world where nothing can be hidden, you better not have anything to hide. Right. <laughs> um, right. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, so, so from that journey, are there particular lessons or to-dos that you would convey to others that might be CCOs with uh, privately held companies? Yeah, ask the question, uh, right? So smart. Don't, don't just assume, just ask the question. You know, for example, a few years ago, companies uh, in the UK were required to report out on the um, on a gender pay gap within their organization. 
and Bethel has a large presence in uh, in the UK as well. And as we were putting together the report, uh, which would ultimately go up on the company's uh, on the government website, you know, I asked the question of, well, why aren't we sending this report to all of our employees? Um, but I kept asking the question because you know, any employee can go on the government website and get this information. So why don't we just share it with them exactly. at the same time or before we post it? Yeah. Right. It, the, the truth is what it is. That's right. 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 No, no, it makes perfect sense. And, and you hit sort of two hot buttons for me. One is that to the extent that it's possible, employees should know first. Right. Uh, and, then, and then two, it's, it's really smart to think about the context in which you're operating right. in today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, our, and our employees are smart. They're, they're paying attention to what's going on in the world. So let's not pretend like the world hasn't changed. Right. I, I can tell you, though, even at a public company, <laughs> there were those, yeah. you know, it's, we've never done it that way, Gary. Yeah. And I and heard it at a public company, too. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. All right. So now on the crux, Charlene, we're going to get a little personal. Okay. okay. All right. So wh- one of the questions I get all the time from students, undergrads, and I got it actually when I was the CCO at GE, was about postgraduate education. Mm-hmm. And you, you have both an MBA and mm-hmm. a master's in, um, in communications. Um, okay. What advice would you give a young person? They, what they ask me is, which one should I do? Right. What, what right. do you think? Well, you know, I, I got that question frequently in, uh, a couple of years ago. I uh, got the question from my daughter, who's a graduate of Boston <laughs> University. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and decided to go back to graduate school at Georgetown. And I, I said, oh, that's great. An MBA from Georgetown will be fantastic. I like that, and, too. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, yeah, but she said, no, Mom, I'm getting a master's in communication. There you go. <laughs> I said, okay. So... You know, I typically um, would tell college students, you know, get your degree. If you're going to get a master's degree, get an MBA because CCOs and peer professionals need to understand business um, and financial statements, and they especially need to understand how their companies make money. Oh, yeah. Right? But now that I see universities strengthening their curricula in their communications programs and their communication studies, to include business. Yes. So I think as much as answering the question, do I need an MBA or do I need a master's um, in communications, I think you have to look at um, what are the courses that are being taught and are they preparing you? Right. right? Because for, yeah. for many communicators, you know, a, an MBA is a nightmare. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and reading that, and, you know, I won't tell you how many times I had to take statistics. So Oh, I know um, it. You know, so I, I think that now that the communications programs are getting stronger, and so look at what the courses are that are being offered. You can just be disappointed, though, that uh, many business schools still aren't recognizing the need to teach the importance of communications principles right. and strategies in their programs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, Gary teaches a, a financial communications course right. in, in the graduate program. Yes, and it's mm-hmm. uh, and the stu- students love it. The students really, right. really uh, get into it. And so one of the th- other things I, I said we were going to get personal here, the second topic is y- your friends in the profession, and you have a lot of them, and I consider myself one, 
have known that uh, you've been fighting breast cancer for more three years now, uh, Charlene. Three. If I, yeah, mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm counting right, and you are. and uh, still in some ways you're having um, some health fallout. So first, I, I have to ask. How did you manage all of that with such an, a big job and uh, all the community work that you do? How did you keep focused on the day-to-day? Well, for the most part, I didn't really think about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I thought about just um, throughout the whole process, I thought about just putting one foot in front of the other each day. I'll tell you that I was very uh, ill-prepared for... Um, for my diagnosis and the treatment that I would need. I, I really paid no attention until I was diagnosed, of course. Right. And then, of course, I learned a lot, but I also thought that once I was finished with the treatment, which for me was the final after surgery, chemo, and radiation was the last piece, that I would be fine and, uh, and go back to my life. And um, and that was really, I think, the turning point for me when I realized that, wow, okay, this, this is not something simple and it's not something I'm going to get over, that this is much more, uh, much more serious than that. You know, I, I was fortunate that I didn't um, work during the bulk of my, right. um, my treatment, obviously during surgery, but I did not um, work during chemo or radiation. Um, and so I'm very, very thankful for that. But, uh, you know, cancer has a way of redefining your life for you, yeah. whether, whether you want it to or not. And, and then having two more years on top of that of complications has been really um, interesting. Yeah. And, and look, and that's a polite way to put it. Right. <laughs> and Charlene thinks really smartly about this the comment that you just made, Charlene, about uh, cancer defining you in, in some ways. And I read through, Charlene has a terrific blog, Mm -hmm. Just Between Us Girls, and there's two R's in girls.com. And on it, you talk about not sort of celebrating anniversaries of diagnosis and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing, but thinking about it in a way that, you know, you just mentioned Uh. uh, refusing to let it define who you are as a person. Could you tell us a little bit more about about that? Yeah, you know, cancer is a... um you know, it's a it's a funny thing, and, and thank you for bringing up my blog about my journey. Uh, and I actually started the blog because I wanted to focus on uh, post-treatment because that's where I think the work really starts, and it's the part of the cancer that's talked about the least. You know, um, how do you get your life back, you know, and is the life that you had before cancer the life you want? And so... So it, be, it becomes very, uh, very challenging because you're no longer who you used to be. You might look the same, you know, everybody thinks that you're the same, uh, but you're not. And right. so you have to just completely learn to, um, to build a new life yeah. and to figure out what you want that life to be. Yeah. You know, and I'll tell you, when I first went back to work, the um, first month, and I had my regular, you know, amounts of work on my desk. And <laughs> one day, I I was sitting there and I was talking to a coworker, and I said, "Oh my gosh, this is a ton of work. Who used to do all this?" Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And my coworker looked at me and she said, "You did." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, no. you, you know, to, to that extent, I mean, my wife also battled uh, breast cancer, and it was interesting because I would say for everyone in the family, it was somewhat transformational in the mm-hmm. sense of it, it kind of forces you to, or at least it forced us uh, to take a look at, okay, so what is our life really about? And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, should we do something differently should, rather than just sort of merrily going exactly. through day to day? Are there things that we need to reflect on, team things that we need to take some time out right. for and, and think about the consequences on others? And it sounds like in, in, in at least that one frame you did. Are there other things that have, have prompted you to say, you know, what, I want to do this differently? Oh, oh, absolutely. I um, I realized in hindsight, you know, I've, I've always been on a mission. I've always been hard charging. <laughs> I've always been, you know, why take on one thing when you can take on six? Um, you know, and, uh, and it's changed my perspective a bit to really focus on when, where, and how do I want to challenge, uh, uh, channel my energy. Um, and I, I take things... Um, uh, very seriously about how I spend my time, um, how I interact with people. That you know, I have friends who um, I want them to know how I feel about them. Uh, I don't want them to ever wonder. And through my um, through my three year process, um, I literally uh, almost died three times. Wow! And so that makes you just. You know, that, that makes you want to tell people how you feel about them. It makes you want to excise toxic people from your lives and toxic situations. It changes what you're willing to um, put up with. Mm-hmm. And it teaches you to look for joy. Yeah. You yeah. Know, where, where do you find joy? Well, that's a, such a great insight. Absolutely. Really great insight. And, and by the way, Please go read the blog. We'll put the blog uh, website. Uh, a link to it. Link to it up on the Crux site. And read about Charlene's journey, but also read the comments Yeah. from the people oh, yeah. who obviously respect and love her. Uh, and you'll rec- if you're in the profession, you'll recognize a lot mm-hmm. of the names. But I think that uh, those feelings are reciprocated, and it's clear from the comments in that uh, on your blog site, which is just really, really terrific. So in addition to leading page, which is a gigantic job, what are you going to be doing now? Where, where, are, you cha- where are you channeling your energies? Well, you know, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my husband, Greg, asks me every day, when, when am I going to get a job? <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I just kind of smile and, you know, walk by. But, you know, I, I, I'm running along several paths right now that I'm, uh, that I'm doing. So, for one, if I'm considering uh, starting a communications consultancy. Oh, nice. Um, right. I, you know, targeted at the C-suite. Um, it's a, it would be a one-on-one. I'm not looking to, to hire staff, et cetera. Um, I've also started working on getting credentialed as an executive and transformation coach. Wow. And so, um, you know, much to the point when we were talking about the Diverse Futures Program, Mm -hmm. I would like to help others, especially people uh, of color and other minorities, reach the C-suite and be able to make an impact and feel comfortable there. Of course, we talked a little bit about my... um, 
about my health, my health challenges, and my uh, my blog, as I said, which focuses on post treatment. Uh, and I'm in the process now of using the blog as the basis for a book wow. uh, and a speaking platform. So mm-hmm. I'm a strong believer that if something bad happens to you, you have a responsibility to turn it into something positive uh, and use those lessons to lift others. So. Charlene, I thought you said you were going to focus on fewer things. That's a that's a <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty big plate right there, and uh, we yeah. all ex- expected it would be. Yeah, you know, it all kind of comes together, and I, and I do have to say, I I feel um, fortunate in that you know I honestly feel like everything I've done in my life and career, both the challenges and the triumphs, um, have led me to this point. Um, and it's pretty exciting to think about investing in myself. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Um, but, yeah. But I, I should say, however, and acknowledge that all of these initiatives will become my um, side hustle if the NFL ever calls me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, my dream job is to be the CCO of the NFL. Ah, yeah. good for That you. will get me out of retirement. Who do you root for in the NFL? Well, you know, deep down, I, um, I was raised in Oakland, California, and so deep down, I am an Oakland Raiders girl through and through. Well, Las Vegas, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, I, I had a hard time when they went to Los Angeles. Um, I'm having a really hard time um, now that they're going to Vegas, because wow. uh, to me, the Raiders are the Oakland Raiders. But then on the other side, having spent four years as an uh, NFL cheerleader with the Washington Redskins, um, they're my they're my B team. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's too bad. That's too bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. The last time they went to the Super Bowl, I was a cheerleader. So that ought to tell you something. <laughs> well, good for you. Well, listen, this has been terrific. And thank you for being on the crux, Charlene. And, and good luck with everything. And looking forward to working with you on page. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you very much, Jerry and Mike. It's always nice to talk with you all. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.